This is The Garden Podcast, and in fact, our last episode in its current guise. I'm Chris Young. We've decided to move all of our podcasts into one easy-to-find place. So, if you want to hear more from me and what The Garden magazine has to offer, then make sure you're subscribed to our main show, Gardening with the RHS, where you can hear from us and the wider RHS team every week. But back to today's show, and it's quite a finale. I'm joined by one of the magazine's regular contributors, Melissa Mabbott, and we're going to be exploring some highlights from the show over the past year. Plus, we'll give you a sneak preview of January's edition of the magazine, as we hear from someone, probably with the best name out there, to talk about indoor ferns. It's another Chris Young. In fact, there are three Chris Youngs in the RHS, but that's another story for another time. So, hello, Melissa. Hi, Chris. So you're one of the writers for The Garden, Melissa, and Mm -hmm. a vital part of our production team. Let's begin with a look over the last year in gardening. And it's been quite a different one, hasn't it, for all of us, as we've all spent more time in our gardens. What are some of the big changes that you've noticed over the past year in the gardening world? Well, I mean, the interest, the surge of interest in gardening is the biggest one. I mean, we've had industry contact, haven't we, which has kind of supported the anecdotal evidence out there. The vegetable seeds sold out. My personal experience of trying to get tomato plants this spring was just, it was a nightmare. Also, I would like to think from some of the evidence I've seen that people are maybe moving away from lifestyle gardening and more into actual growing so I think there's been a trend over recent years to turn your garden into more of an outside room and entertaining mm. space. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes that can be to the detriment of plants and growing and actual horticultural skills. And I think people had the time to actually develop those real growing skills during lockdown. And it seems like people have really grasped that opportunity. And what about being one of the team and all of us making magazines from bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchen tables, greenhouses, yeah. wherever. <laughs> How have you found your part of that? Yeah, it certainly had its challenges. I think I'm one of the kind of quite odd people that really loved going to the office. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, we had a great office environment. There was a lot of a chat, a lot of creativity in the office. And I've missed that a lot, I have to admit. But my neighbours have become my new colleagues. So, <laughs> you know, you make new relationships as well, don't you? So yeah, it's been an interesting one. And I will be really happy when we can spend a bit more time together as a team, though. What I've realised, and my poor wife and children and dog and cat have borne the brunt of it is that I I need people to stimulate me and excite me and get me interested and just get that creativity but if you'd asked me this a year ago I'd have said oh god I'm fed up with people I just need time on my own (laughs) um, so I don't think I'm ever happy but it's just trying to get that balance back into our world the grass is always greener on the other side isn't it yeah yeah absolutely There have also been many challenges within the RHS this year as well. And not only have we had to make our flower shows, for example, online events, but we've also welcomed a new president. And it was a personal highlight for me to talk to our new president, Keith Weed. In September's edition, we talked about what brought him to the RHS and what he hopes to achieve. So, Keith, you're just about to become the 22nd president of the RHS. Tell me why now and why did you want to become the president? Well, firstly, a passion for plants and gardens and all things sort of green and outdoors. So um, an easy area for me to be passionate about. But I think that the RHS is at a a really important moment right now. There's been a tremendous investment by the charity in uh, gardens and a new garden arriving in Bridgewater near Manchester. 
And I think it's a, a fabulous opportunity to sort of build on the great work that's been done over recent years, but also to look forward to the role of gardening in people's lives. And we're sitting here in, in your beautiful garden, and clearly you have a, a very um, genuine passion and interest in gardening. And has that been a lifetime, or has that been more recent in terms of your, your interest? So uh, lifetime interest, but I have to say it started all around vegetables. My mother was a very keen gardener. The whole family was sort of encouraged to be outdoors. But what's expanded uh, since then is the joy of gardening on a broader base. And I suppose, funny, it is the, the sort of the magic and logic of gardens, the magic, of course, what you can create and whether it be topiary, I like, I like the structure of topiary or, or spaliers, uh, apples, as you saw, through to the sort of the looser side of, of the wildflower meadow. That whole magic side is like, but the logic behind it, there is a science behind gardening. Mm. So that sort of magic and logic of gardening, I think, is, is very rewarding. But that's a lovely way of putting a lot of what the RHS is doing and should be doing, especially in the logic sense, because so much of our work is defined by science and supported by science and understanding. Do you think there's a, a greater need than ever now in the general population, general population of gardeners, that they need to understand the logic in it to really enjoy the magic of it? Yeah, I think so. But there's also a bigger logic coming on. So I'm a great believer in science. Actually, by training, I'm an engineer um, and I'm actually a fellow of the mechanical engineers, believe it or not. But so there's a sort of a logic science side to me. And I believe the, the role of science in the world of the environment, the world of gardening is going to get more important particularly the challenges we have right now around climate change are going to continue. And gardening is changing very practically. People realise you have greater periods of time, even in the UK, where it's not raining, and that will increase so. So making sure that you collect water and can use water in a more responsible way on one side, but through to challenges of peat and pesticides and plastic, all the environmental challenges as well. And I believe that gardeners are, are very much guardians of our, our future when it comes to, to the outdoor space. And we, of course, are going to see more building in the UK. And I think it's going to be more important to make our gardens work harder for ourselves and our enjoyment and our health and being out there, but also for the environment as well, right through to biodiversity and the biodiversity of, of plants. And I think it's a huge opportunity to bring younger people who have a much greater passion and commitment to addressing some of these challenges in the environment. You can hear the full interview in the September episode of the podcast. He was one, certainly one of the highlights in September, Melissa. Are there any other highlights from this year that you've been thinking about? So many, to be honest. We've had a, a cracking year, I think. Um, we did a feature on health and well-being in the garden, which actually looked at some of the real evidence that's out there to good for our mental health and physical health. I think my personal highlight has been the wildlife column that we've done because we've done some really interesting uh, little beasties that you wouldn't normally think about in your garden, such as day flying moths and the bee mimics. That was a really good one as well. So I love wildlife. I love the wildlife pages. It's really good. So look, one of the things that I've always loved, I've loved ever since I've been an editor, even um, when I was an editor in a previous gardening magazine, is the comment section. And I love hearing from our members and I love people writing in in the first person because I think if there's a vibrancy to your letters page and your comment page and you know there's a community of people who are passionate and engaged with your subject. And obviously we have the comment section in the garden where we invite great minds to cover anything from well-being to growing your own. And Rachel Detame uh, was a new columnist for us this year. And she spent time writing about how and why gardeners should consider the changes they make to their plots. And this was something we talked about back in January. 
I've been visiting gardens um, ever since I can remember. It's something that my parents did with us on a Sunday. We got in the car <laughs> and we would we were taken off to somewhere or other. Um, Reluctantly and, or happily? Yes, happily. I don't okay. remember. I mean, other than feeling carsick in the car, I don't remember ever having a problem with actually being in the garden. And I loved it even more if there was a stately home or somewhere to walk round. It was the combination of the two because I'm quite a history geek and I enjoy all of that and looking at art and antiques and so on. And really, as a quite a young child, I've, I've never had that feeling of, oh, God, when can we go? And no, I've always loved it. So perhaps an odd child, I think. <laughs> but grown into a uh, very wise adult, obviously, who appreciates visiting gardens. In your column, you encourage us to ensure our gardens are giving us what we really want. What for you makes a great garden and why? Oh, I think it's that elusive thing, isn't it? That you know the minute you see it, but can be quite hard to achieve. I think it's a combination of things. It's when everything just falls into place. And sometimes it does that almost for a fleeting moment and you feel everything's just come together beautifully. But it has to be, I think, when a garden is fairly simple. I think often when things are very overcomplicated and they try too hard that I feel it goes over. It's almost like a painting that's been overworked. And also somewhere that I think captures the sense of the place that it's in, that doesn't try to be somewhere else. And has the character of the person that makes the garden as well, that's very personal. But it's such a difficult thing to put your finger on. When it works, it's just magic. Absolutely. In the series, you'll be uh, looking at some of the key features like herbaceous borders or pergolas or small garden trees and talk about why they work and how to make them work even better in your garden. Are there some key elements for you that are essential for good garden structure? Well, I think, first of all, the structure is often overlooked. And so, I mean, certainly for me as a novice gardener, it was all about the plants. And I really didn't give much thought at all to the hard landscaping and things that surrounded it. I'm now feeling much more appreciative of those sort of elements when I look around gardens because they can often, you know, contribute to a garden working and, or not. And I think certainly getting the boundaries right is quite a big thing whether they are the external boundaries around the whole thing or things that divide up the space. And it's how you do that that's really, really key. And also perhaps not using too many different materials. That's something I see happening a lot and it jars. You know, you've got red brick and you've got stone and you've got metal and you've got all sorts of things going on. It's like getting dressed and being told to take off one thing. It's, <laughs> it's that sort of thinking, just sometimes just lose something and it just feels better. Rachel Detame there. We've had many long-running series in the garden over the years, and one of my favourites has been the chance to talk to Mark Diacono for his Taste to Celebrate articles, and we've covered all sorts of edibles this year, from rhubarbs and pears and currants, to name but a few. And it's always a joy speaking to Mark, and he always has a bit of a twinkle in his eye, but always loads of knowledge about the subject. So tell me, why did you want to write about white and red currants? I really, really love them, Chris. And I know that you, amongst many, could point at me and go, tell me, Diakono, something you can eat that you don't love. But I, I really do <laughs> love currants. I think they're underappreciated. And I actually find them, as a plant and as the fruit itself, I find them really beautiful. The flowers are small but glorious, if readers of the garden, will, as they'll see. 
the range of colours and shapes and sizes of the fruit itself, and they've been really beautifully captured. You know, they come alive on the page and they come alive in the hand and in the garden, and I quite like the underdog. You know, they're kind of underappreciated, and that makes me want to go, listen, have you, have you even considered the loveliness of the red currant, the white currant, you know? So people will know generally about currants, red, white or pink currants, but can you explain the flavour difference between them and give me a couple of examples that you wouldn't be without? It's really interesting, this, because they're flavour-wise, they're sort of on a spectrum. You know, it's not where you're suddenly turning a corner and going, well, that's an apple and that's a pear. Generally speaking, white are sweeter than red, which is interesting because logic might tell you that the redder they are, the kind of sweeter they are, the riper they are, but actually it's the other way around. Pink tend to be in the sweeter end as well. There are some really wonderful examples of different varieties that you should grow. I've grown the classic Yonkyus Van Tets and Stanza, both amazing red currants. Laxton's number one as well. I've grown white Versailles and white pearl again, which are really marvellous. It's quite interesting for me about this concept of when you have something edible and especially fruit that is actually long lived. I mean, these are proper um, shrubs in that sense. And actually, there's this idea that people maybe could embrace a bit more the uh, ornamental edible so that actually we grow rhubarb in our borders, both for its leaf, but also for its fruit. And actually, currants could be one of those. It could be a real good stalwart at the back of any size garden. And actually, they'll have the ornamental value. But of course, they'll have the edible benefit, too. Exactly that. And one of the, you know, especially with the red and the white currants rather than black, yes, they love the sun and they're ripening more quickly in the sun. But if you've got a shadier area or you've got a north facing wall that you could train them against, you will get fruit that ripens. It will just ripen a bit later. So you've got an option there. You don't have a lot of options of what can I grow against a shady wall, you know, in terms of fruit and red and white currants all day long. Mark Diacono speaking there as part of an interview I did with him in July's edition of the show. It's always great to chat to Mark and his series makes me think about a big shift in 2020 that many more people have become interested in growing their own produce. Melissa, what do you think? Do you have a passion for growing your own? I think that in 2020, when we saw some of the food shortages in the supermarket earlier this year, I think it genuinely frightened people a little bit and made them suddenly realise, you know, or think, start thinking about where the food came from and thought, do you know what, I think I'll actually give it a go myself because then if there isn't any fresh salad in the supermarket, maybe I can just grow a bit of my own. So it's also just great fun, isn't it? And it's a lovely, rewarding thing to do. And as as we keep saying, people had a lot more time this year to try new things. Are you a fruit and veg grower? I grow fruit because it's just easier. So we've got a lot of fruit bushes, fruit cane, cane fruit. We grow gooseberries because you can't get them in the shops these days. Um, so I've got... You're talking to somebody who's a self-confessed disciple of gooseberries. So oh, I can't, you you know, are... I, I... oh, what's wrong with you? No, they're amazing. They're uh, well, amazing. I, I'll tell you, I won't tell you exactly what's wrong with me, but I had a very unfortunate <laughs> incident with a gooseberry yogurt once in my nostrils. And that's all I can say. But I, I can tell you, it isn't a good combination. <laughs> No, we get, we've got four bushes and we get about eight kilos of gooseberries every year. So I won't be sending any down to you. No, but, please um, don't. You can keep yeah. those. Keep, treat yourself. Keep them, keep them in the freezer. <laughs> I'm going to get so much gooseberry hate. <laughs> so on the back of more people growing this year, we are also hopefully creating more positive habitats for wildlife. And back in March, as lockdown gripped the nation and the roads fell quiet, they really did, and the skies, we were all amazed at the birdsong surrounding us as we were at home. And this was reflected in the magazine. 
as we published lots of articles all about different sorts of animals. A particularly memorable piece for me was in June when we profiled day-flying moths and we heard from RHS scientist Stephanie Bird. Especially for the occasion, I have put on one of my favourite moth t-shirts for today. It's got garden tigers on it and jersey tigers, which are not tigers, they are species of moth. So it's black background, lots of moths. Moths are Lepidoptera, so they're the same really as butterflies. In the UK there are over 2,500 species, the majority of which fly at night. But there are a handful you can see during the day. I went for a walk last week and I was able to see some and point them out to people, obviously from a distance. So I've been interested in moths well since I was little and it all stemmed from finding an incredibly exciting caterpillar. Ooh, I'd have probably been about five or six at the time. It was a Vapora moth caterpillar, if you're familiar with it. These have plumes of exciting red and yellow hairs. And I found it and I was like, this is going to turn into something amazing. So I collected it. I collected leaves of the plant that I found it on. I fed it. It formed a cocoon. I was really excited. But then when it emerged, it was small and grey and and sort of hairy and it didn't have any wings and I thought oh no I fed it the wrong thing and that hasn't grown properly and I was quite disappointed because I was expecting huge colourful wings but then I went away and I looked up what it was because my mum did have a, a moth book and this was what the female was supposed to look like but it was from that point that I decided whenever I found an exciting caterpillar, I was going to work out what it would turn into beforehand, just so I knew what I was expecting and I wasn't going to be disappointed. It did mean the hours of unrolling stinging nettle leaves trying to get a peacock butterfly caterpillars. The transformation from being a caterpillar to becoming a moth or a butterfly is something that still interests me today. If you go to YouTube, you can watch the videos of sort of caterpillars pupating and then with the time lapse, them emerging and sort of pumping out their wings and letting them dry out and flying away. Stephanie Bird. Now, we can reminisce all day long about times past, but our next edition will be flying through letterboxes at any moment. And let me tell you, it is packed full of goodies. Melissa, what have you written this month? And are there any other features you've proofread or read that have caught your eye? Well, I'm really pleased with my weekend project that's coming up. That's a planted coffee table, which turned out really beautifully, I think. And I just proofread Phil, our deputy editor's piece on Avon bulbs, which is a really great piece full of some really, really fun quotes. It was good. Yeah, it is a really good piece and certainly brings Avon Bulb's personalities to life. <laughs> and recording these podcasts, it is always great because not only is it enjoyable, but it does make you stop and think for a moment about what we've put in the issue. When you're editing a magazine, it can go quite quickly. So you can sometimes don't take the time to stop and think, actually, what will people be enjoying about it? And actually, on reflection, it's a really planty issue. Mm. We've got a profile on celandines. We've got early flowering rhododendrons. We've got plants for winter interest. We've got a new series with James. Perone on houseplants. So there's everything I would have thought that most people will want to know about plants. 
it would be foolish of me to not mention an article by someone with a rather marvellous name. It's another Christopher Young. Christopher is the Glasshouse team leader at RHS Garden Wisley, and he's penned a piece for us on indoor ferns. In this month's article, he writes extensively about a number of exciting selections we can grow indoors and how to create the best environment for them. It's partnered with one of our photographic plates, and I wanted to speak to Chris 2.0 to find out more about these intriguing plants. I was really kind of drawn to ferns from the outset just because they fascinate me as they're plants which don't need flowers to reproduce. And there's so much variety in the form and texture of the foliage. So some are really kind of airy, whereas others can be quite like thick, leathery leaves. It's just a variety, I think, for me. And there has been an increase in the popularity of indoor ferns recently. Obviously, there's been a houseplant craze going again in the last couple of years, but now people are turning their interest to ferns. As they're quite ideal for growing in the home, just because they're a bit more tolerant of indirect light, so they don't need to have that bright sunlight. So if you've got a more shady location in your room, ferns can often be ideal candidates. And also, they're quite tolerant of high humidity locations, so anywhere like you have a kitchen or a bathroom, Ferns would generally be quite uh, well suited to those kind of situations. The best location for indoor ferns tend to be areas where there's bright indirect light. So an east or west facing aspect is normally ideal. But it's really best to try and avoid direct sunlight as this can often scorch fronds, especially the younger ones. But they are highly adaptable. So things like Phlebodium aureum, which is commonly known as golden polypody, um, it's actually quite tolerant of more higher light levels, say, than a Placerum, the Elkshorn fern, or an Asplenium. Indoor ferns should be kept moist all the time, but they don't want to be waterlogged, so they can enjoy good drainage, but they just don't want to sit in water. So don't ever leave them like sitting in a, uh, a saucer or something. They just like the water to kind of flow through, and then just leave them to dry out a bit. If you've got a fern which prefers a bit of high humidity, but it's in the more of a lounge location and the central heating's on, and you're afraid it's going to like dry out a bit, so like the atmosphere's going to dry out, then you can like mist ferns daily. And it's best to kind of use like rainwater or distilled water for this. Hard water can leave like deposits on the leaves. Common problems when growing indoor ferns in the home tend to be more kind of the browning of the fronds, especially at the tips. This tends to be either a sign of low humidity, so the fern just needs a bit of higher humidity around it, so that could be rectified by just giving them a mist over daily, or underwatering, so you may just need to be checking your plants a bit more regularly, just giving them some additional water, or commonly, especially in my home, which is very drafty, it's drafts. <laughs> Other things as well, pests can be an issue, especially mealybug, scale and aphid. I think most of the time these are brought in when you buy the plant in the garden centre, so really check them before you bring them home. Gardeners in general kind of have a stylized image of a fern. I'm always drawn to the kind of idea of a Victorian glasshouse with lots of maidenhair ferns, which are the ones which have little fine leaflets on like black stems. But there is such variety out there. For example, things like the Splenium nidus or the bird's nest fern. A real variety of fronds there. Some are really crispy, which they're kind of heavily undulating. And then there's other ones which are just completely irregular. There's no rhyme or reason to the shapes. <laughs> they're just completely spontaneous. And then some other things like Phlebodium aureum tend to be a bit more simple in appearance. So they've got a lovely kind of glaucous blue 
colour to the fronds. The juvenile fronds are coloured, which is quite interesting. So things like Devalia humata termanii, the white hairsfoot fern. When the fronds first emerge, they're bright, almost coppery colour, and then they fade to a darker green, which is uh, really cool. If you're a little bit sceptical about growing ferns in the home, or unsure, or daunted by them, I wouldn't be. <laughs> These are really primitive plants. You know, they don't need flowers. They can just reproduce by themselves. And I think the variation in the form and the growth habit and the colour offers year-round interest. And I think the more people are going to get start growing them, the more fascinated they'll become by them. Christopher J. Young. So to finish today, I'd just like to talk about the next 12 months and what we can expect from the world of horticulture. Melissa, what are you looking forward to in the year ahead? I think seeing my friends in the world of horticulture. I'm so excited that Chelsea is going to be back on. I mean, I love it for the show gardens, but also it's a great place to see movers and shakers in the world of horticulture and catch up with people. And that's what I'm looking forward to. I think 2021 is going to be an interesting year because we know now that there are 30 million people gardening. We've welcomed about 3 million more people gardening this year, according to all reports and statistics. So wherever we are in our own gardening journey, we need to ensure that we continue to enthuse and excite people to carry on gardening. There's some more challenges for the industry, but environmentalism and sustainability are going to be absolutely crucial topics that people are going to need to be able to discuss. And we need to discuss it in a way that doesn't make us feel guilty, but that actually there's going to be ways that we can help treat our land and the beings that live on it a bit better. But I guess whatever happens in the year ahead, we have our plants and we have people and we have gardening. So no matter what gets thrown at us, spending time in nature and growing plants are two of the most vital, important things us humans can do. And let's hope we can do a lot more of it in the year ahead. So on that note, it's time to finish today's show. Thank you so much for joining me, Melissa. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If I may, I just wanted to say that I've really enjoyed hosting The Garden Podcast. Not only have I hopefully learned a new skill, but it's also allowed me to share my love of the subject with people, both with the garden editorial team, with photographers and writers, and all who make the mag what it is. Hearing from listeners too has been really fun, and our avid listener, Tim Howell, must get a mention for his constant support. I've also loved working with the team behind the production of it, so many thanks to the two Alexes, George, who's smiling away on our Zoom call now, and Katie, and Gareth from the RHS for making it all come together. I'll genuinely miss it. So make sure you're subscribed to Gardening with the RHS, where I'll be making appearances to talk through the latest issues of the magazine. You can get it wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about today's discussion, then visit rhs.org.uk for Garden Podcast. From me, Chris Young, and my colleague Melissa Mabbott, it's goodbye. Goodbye.